Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on Sunday, September 22nd, 2013. Today's message is Love is Power by Pastor Isaac Whiting based on 1 Corinthians 13. Today's special offertory is a piano duet, Catherine Rowe and Grace Suen. Well, good morning. It's been a bit of a wild morning for me, my boys. I looked into my Bible just before, uh, just before the last song, just before the offering, and one of probably my younger children had stolen the sermon out of my Bible. God in his providence had directed me to make two copies of it. So if you saw me leaving the sanctuary a few minutes ago, that was what I was doing, getting my second copy. But even when there's chaos in the world that we see, even when there's chaos in the world that we see, there is much more and more important things going on in the world that we cannot see. When I spoke three weeks ago on September 1st, I asked you which has more power? Which has more power, the spirit or the flesh? The things that we can see or the things that we can't see? And I asked you a number of questions, a number of questions to help you think about that. The passage that we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's point in this passage is that love is the most important thing. That it's the most important thing. Love is where true power and goodness are because love is the very nature of God himself. Let's pray as we go to the word. Father God, we come before you humbly today. And we ask that you would open your word to us. Help us, first of all, to understand what it means. Second, to put it into practice in our lives. And third, by the power of your spirit, to be transformed in our hearts, to be more and more like Jesus through it. Amen. This passage... 1 Corinthians 13, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on it apart from at a wedding. This is one of the two texts that is classically preached at, at weddings, and you can see why it's all about love, but in fact, the text doesn't have anything to do with marriage. Paul was not writing this passage for two people who were getting married. He was writing it for a church was writing it for the Corinthian church, a church who he loved, but a church that had some problems in it. As he comes to this chapter, he has been reminding the Corinthians about things that they, they have been distracted by. They have been distracted by a number of things which are good and important, but are not the most important things. 
they were putting their time and energy, according to Paul, into the wrong places. Now, it's interesting if we look in 1 Corinthians 13, what kinds of things the Corinthians were distracted by. They're things typically that we are not distracted by and things that might not seem all that bad. The Corinthians are spending their time and their energy focused on speaking in tongues. They're focused on prophecy in the Lord. They're focused on prayer in faith, prayer, uh, believing prayer that actually has results in the world. And they're focused on giving up everything they own and becoming martyrs. These are the things that they are focused on. And Paul says that they are distracted, that they're focused on the wrong things. There can be, you see, only one thing that is the primary focus for you and your life, for us in our church. Only one thing can be first. That was a good illustration we had a few minutes ago with Elijah standing, a Bible in one hand and a map on how to run out of the sanctuary in his other hand. He can't go both ways at once. He can only follow one thing first. And this is Paul's point. The Corinthians are distracted. So he tells them that he will show them what is the very best way the most excellent way. The chapter breaks down into three sections. Uh, so I'll begin first by defining our terms here. We'll talk a little bit about what love means in the Bible and in this text. And then we'll talk about the three sections of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, the first section going down to verse 3 is where he tries to wake up the Corinthians and show them the things that are not important. The second section he shows from verse 4 to 8 what power love actually has. And the last section he tells us how everything else will disappear eventually. So first, let's come to this word love. We need to constantly remind ourselves what true biblical love is, what the Bible means when it says love. And as many of you know, probably know, there is a bit of a problem in translating the word love from the Greek language into the English language. And that problem is that in the Greek language, there are three primary words for love while in English we have only one. The three words for love in Greek, there are four, but one is not used very often. The three words for love in Greek are eros and philia and agape. And if you just raise your hand so I can know, how many of you have heard the word agape before and have some idea what that means? Great. So this will be a short review for most of us. The first kind of love in the ancient Greek language, eros, was essentially selfish love. It is self-centered love. You love someone or something else because of, and only because of, what it can do or what they can do for you. 
And the example often used is this is the way that you would love a hamburger, right? You would love a hamburger not for what you can do for it or for its good, but you would love it for what it can do for you. It can feed you and you will have a great meal. This kind of love is uh, commonly talked about in the ancient world, and it is a kind of love as one of the primary meanings of the word love in English. I love it. This is what we most often mean when we say the word in English like that. This word is never used in the New Testament, not even once. The second word for love in the ancient Greek language is philia. And this is essentially brotherly love or family love. And this is a kind of love that goes two ways. Uh, It's both self-interested and it's interested in the other person or the person loved. And this is because in family love, which is the best example of this kind of love, your identity has become wrapped up with the person or thing that you love. So, for example, my children. I love my children very much, but I am so close to them. They're so much a part of me in my life that there's a sense in which they are, they are me. They are part of my identity. And so to love them is connected with loving myself. This is love that goes both ways. It is both interested in self and interested in the person or thing that it loves. And then, of course, the third term, the highest form of love in the Greek language and the word used most often when the Bible speaks of love is the word agape. Agape is spiritual love. It is love that is completely uninterested in self. It exists entirely for the person or object that's loved. Now, many philosophers and psychologists, modern ones especially, have thought about this from the perspective of the world without the spirit and come to the conclusion that that kind of love is actually impossible. That you could never really love someone or something else with no interest for yourself at all. And I think that they're right. This kind of love is spiritual love. It only comes from the Spirit of God. It cannot happen uh, naturally to human beings to love in this way. This kind of agape love is, of course, the love that is demonstrated most fully in Jesus, who died, who laid down his life, not for his family members, Not for people who he identified with, but for his friends. That is, simply the ones he loved. You and me, who he didn't even know yet. This is the kind of love that is shown to us in Jesus. Pure, spiritual love. So there's our definition of terms. And we'll begin into 1 Corinthians 13. Paul opens this section, as I said, by identifying a number of things that the Corinthians are distracted by. Things that they have put 
possibly above their pursuit of the love of God. And as I said, those things are not things that many of us here are struggling with today. Uh, putting in front of uh, love of God, uh, worrying about prophecy or worrying about speaking in tongues or trying to become martyrs for Jesus. But I think that there are a number of other things that we could be distracted by. And as I was preparing this message, I had this thought. We're in a transition period right now. Our senior pastor has moved on. We don't have a senior pastor. Many of us are thinking about the future of the church, who we're going to get as a senior pastor, where we're going to go as a church. And the thought I had is, if you were lying in your bed or sitting in your living room and an archangel appeared to you, and the archangel said to you, I choose you. I choose you, and you are going to be the one to make a request of God for your church. You can make one request, and whatever it is, it will be granted immediately. You can make your church in one way, however you want it to be. What would you choose? What would you ask God to do if you could only ask one thing? I've rewritten this first section creatively for our congregation. 1 Corinthians 13. What if? What if we as a congregation could find for our next senior pastor the best preacher in the world? What if we could find for our next senior pastor the best preacher maybe who had ever lived apart from Jesus? We find a man who is so full of gifting in speaking the word that when we come to church, we laugh, we cry every week, we're massively encouraged by everything that he says. Everyone, not just a few people, but everyone on the way out is stunned by the eloquence of his speeches. Other people outside of our church start finding out about how good of a preacher this is, and there's more and more people coming to our church. And then uh, people come and they want to televise the sermons, and people all over the world are watching this fantastic preacher that we have at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And he's even known as the best preacher in the world. If we could find that person and hire him, if he did not have love, it would be entirely useless. Our church would be nothing more than a blaring radio or that guy who drives by your house too late at night with his stereo cranked. Does that happen to you too? I live on a busy street. Or what if in this period of transition, we as a church could become amazing volunteer organizers? What if we could become, our leadership team could become a church that could 
pull volunteers to run programs and different ministries uh, seemingly from nowhere. We could become so good at this that all of our boards are filled with people who are gifted and empowered to do exactly what they're supposed to do. And not only that, they love it. Our church business meetings would be full of people all excited to vote on the business of the church, all excited to serve on the boards that they've been placed on. Our ministries would be fantastic, wouldn't they? But if we could do that, if we didn't have love, it would be completely useless. To put it another way, Paul is saying that if you could only choose one, if you could choose to have a church that's full of love, real spiritual love, or if you could have choose to have a church that is incredibly well organized, and you could only choose one or the other, the question, it's not a question. The answer is absolutely clear. Forget the organization. If that were the only choice, you would choose love every time. Now, thankfully, we don't have to be loving people who are completely disorganized. Praise God for that. But if we had to make that choice, the choice would be clear. Or third, and my last illustration here, what if we, during this period of transition, could come up with the best church growth strategy ever? In all of history, we have come up with the best strategy to bring non-Christians to the Lord of anyone ever. I mean, this strategy is amazing. It is seeker-sensitive, outreach-oriented, neighborhood, local, organic, missional, everything you could possibly think of. This strategy is it, and it works. We implement this strategy, and within a month, our church is packed full. I mean, every pew, and people are loving sitting in pews. We, we get people from other churches. Yeah, we drain every other church in the city of their members. And, and we get lots of non-Christians coming into the church. Everyone from the neighborhood, doesn't matter. This strategy is where it's at. Our church has to move to you know, five different services on Sunday. If you come five minutes late, there is nowhere to sit. In fact, our building has been Uh, push to capacity, to fire code capacity, and you are forced to stand outside and wait in line for the next service. That's how many people are here, and that's how good our strategy is. And people are coming to Christ every single week, maybe hundreds of people falling down, thanking God for saving them from their sins and becoming Christians. And Paul is saying that even if we could do that, if we didn't have love, it would be completely useless. We would have entirely failed if we didn't have this kind of love. How can that be? Wouldn't that be success in every way? How could we have entirely failed? In the next section of chapter 13, Paul explains what kind of a power real spiritual love is. 
And don't make a mistake about this. It is a power. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a choice. It's a condition of soul. A condition of soul that is also the condition of God's soul. And it is the source of all other power in the universe. God created everything that we see, right? He created us. He created the world. He created the heavens. And God is love. That means that all other powers derive from this one power, love itself. It is the most powerful thing in existence because it is the nature of God himself. Paul explains in verses 4 to 8 exactly what this love is like. Before I go through the points that he makes, I want to say that we often make a mistake when we read this passage, or at least I do, and I know many people do. We read things like, love is kind and love is patient. Love is never jealous or boastful or proud or rude. And after we read it, we think, okay, if that's what love is like, then what I need to do is go and try to be kind. I need to go and try to be um, patient with other people. I need to go and try to be all of these things. But what Paul is saying is that love is actually the source of these things. He is not suggesting that you try to become loving by treating other people kindly. He is suggesting exactly the opposite, that you will only be able to treat people kindly, consistently, if you are first filled with the love of God. Love is kind, he says. That is, love is nice to other people. It's not mean. Love is patient. It is always able to wait. It doesn't manipulate other people or control them or force them to do other things. Love isn't jealous. It doesn't want what other people have. It doesn't want to take things away from them because it is for them. Love isn't boastful or proud or rude because it isn't about self at all. The person who is filled with the love of God isn't thinking about himself or herself. That person is focused entirely on others, on the ones that they love. Love is not quick-tempered. It doesn't carry around a storehouse of anger that it's ready to unleash on other people as soon as they cross its will. Love rejoices in the truth and not in evil. It rejoices in the truth because it wants what really is best for other people, not what is worst for them. Love isn't just making other people happy. It is the condition that wants what is actually best for them. Love is always supportive. It's always loyal. Love never gives up on someone else, no matter what they have done 
Love is always hopeful. It's always trusting. Even with a person who has done so many things, a repeated pattern of wrong over and over again, love will never cut that person off or let that person go. And aren't you glad that God has not done that with us? And yet, don't we very often do that with other people? In the end of this section, he says that love never fails. Love endures anything. The literal translation is that love never stops. I think that this means that love is, the love of God is unlimited. It is infinite, and therefore, it always wins. It always wins. If you are a person who is filled with the love of God, you might be worried at first, could I really set aside all of these other things, holding people uh, accountable through anger? How many of you do that? I can't let my anger for this person go because then they might just keep on doing whatever it is that they're doing wrong. But love is not angry at them. And we might be afraid that it will turn out badly. But Paul is saying that in the end, love, the love, the kind of love that God has, will always win. It will win over great preaching. It will win over church strategies. It will win over organization. It will win over any kind of evil that can come against it. There is no competition here. This is the power of God himself. Love will always win. Again, remember... We cannot become loving by just doing these things that really love itself does. We need to pursue love itself. And then all of these things that it talks about will become natural for us. It's not hard to be kind to someone if you love them with the love of God. It's not hard to forgive someone if you love them with the love of God. In the third section, starting at verse 8, 8b, and heading down to the end of the chapter, Paul makes a fantastic illustration. I think maybe we read over it too quickly, but it is an incredible piece of imagination to illustrate what he's talking about. He begins by telling us that love will never end. Everything else in the world will come to an end. Preaching will end. Our church will come to an end one day. Your school, your job, your career will end. Your home, even your family will come to an end one day. But love itself will not come to an end. And then he gives us this illustration from childhood. He says that when we were children, we thought and reasoned like children do. But when we grew up, we quit 
our childish ways. Now, I don't know how many of you have watched children playing recently. That happens to me every day, most of the day, and a large portion of the day. And if you watch them, you will see, especially, maybe especially my children, they're obsessed with playing. They're obsessed with playing with toys. And in fact, this seems to be the most important thing in their lives in some ways. And I can remember this feeling myself as a child very distinctly when I was maybe between the ages of five and seven. I can remember thinking that grown-ups were kind of crazy. It seemed like they were really out of touch with reality because it seemed to me that it was obvious that the most important thing in life was playing games with toys. And grown-ups didn't care at all about playing with toys. And so it seemed to me that they were out of touch with reality. They didn't understand what life was really all about. But then, of course, you get older, you become an adult, and you realize that those things don't matter at all. You realize that life is really all about money and career and education, right? You realize that those things didn't matter at all, those toys. The toys themselves, the games that were actually played, no longer have any importance once you become an adult. But what remains important from the way you played when you were a child? What remains important is the kind of person you became while you were playing. Did you learn to share your toys? Did you learn to care for the other kids that you were playing with? Or did you learn to steal toys and hoard them all? That is the only thing that transcends playing with toys. It goes beyond it. It goes into the next stage of life. The same thing is also true, if you think about it, of high school. A number of you in this room today are in high school. In high school, there are things that seem like they are the whole world. Who likes who? What grade will I get? Am I going to make this certain team? All these things seem like they are the whole world. This is evidenced by uh, the rash of suicides we have for teenagers across North America. They think they cannot see out of this little world that they're in. They think that it's all there is. They think that it's all that's important. And if it goes badly the whole world has ended. But the truth is that once you're out of high school and you look back after a few years, you realize that none of it was really that important. The grades that you got didn't matter. As soon as you got to college, none of them mattered. The things that you did in high school, all that remains is who you became while you were doing it. All that remains is, did you learn to love other people? Did you learn to become a good person, or did you learn to use people and control them? What kind of person did you become? Paul gives us these incredible illustrations, this song of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And his whole point is that we should pursue as our number one goal, the love of God itself. 
Not the things that it does, but the love of God itself. God has given us the tools. He has given us in Christ the tools that we need to become people who are filled, filled and even overflowing with this same kind of love that is in God himself. Those tools are available for every one of us to use. Paul is saying, don't get distracted. There are many other things that are good, but don't make any of those things first. The first thing in your life. The first, and even he might say the only thing in your life. The first thing in your life must be to use these tools that have been given to us in Christ to become people who are filled with the love of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for being here with us this morning. God, thank you for calling us to your son Jesus and setting us free from the life that we were born into and trapped in through sin and through our own disobedience and going the wrong way. God, thank you for making the tools available to us in Christ to become people who are like him. Father, it's our prayer this morning that you would make that our number one desire, the thing that we want the most, to become people like Jesus, who love you and who love everyone around us with the love that you yourself are. Amen.